Father, tonight we come as your sheep, and we look to the good shepherd who tends his sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ. You truly are our shepherd. And it is so awesome to be able to come into your pasture and to graze. And Father, I pray that as we study the Old Testament that it would reveal to us our Savior. We know that all Scripture points ultimately to Jesus Christ, and we remember that as Jesus took that walk on the road to Emmaus, He began at Moses and all the prophets, and He expounded all things concerning Himself. And so, Lord, we want to learn. We want to lay a foundation and build upon that tonight. And so we pray, Lord, that You'd help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus chapter 29 is an ordination service, but it's a very, very different ordination service. I don't know if you've ever seen a modern ordination service, and I guess it would depend on what church you go to because every church is very different. In our bylaws, we have the um, permission by the state to ordain ministers of the gospel. And every now and then somebody will come up and say, how do you get ordained around here? Can you ordain me? And I always tell everyone the same answer. Absolutely not. We can't ordain anybody. Only God can really ordain a person. We can only ratify what God has ordained. We can recognize a gift in a person. We can recognize that God has raised a person up, uniquely gifted a person for the ministry. But it's only something we can recognize. We can never empower or imbue with any kind of giftedness. That's God's business. We can merely recognize and ratify what God has done. When somebody is raised up and we ordain them, the board signs the papers and the uh, pastors lay hands on that person and we commend them to the Lord, it's always a great time. Some other churches do it with a lot of pomp and ceremony, and that's fine. They have nice soft music, and then the person after the ordination ceremony gets the term reverend. You can see that we're very different. We don't like to use the term reverend, even though I get called that from time to time. It's kind of actually humorous. I mean, think of this together, reverend skip. It's like an oxymoron. It just doesn't fit. And when I introduce myself to someone, I never say, I'm Reverend Skip Heitzig. I just say, I'm Skip. The reason I've done that, and I've told you probably to the point where you've memorized the scripture already in your head, but there's only one text in the scripture that uses the term Reverend. And it's not Reverend Paul or Reverend Silas or Reverend Luke or Reverend Peter or Timothy. It's God is Reverend. His name is to be revered over all the earth. So I don't really like to apply the term reverend to myself. I'm just Skip, a servant of the Lord, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. That's how Paul introduced himself. Not that I have anything against people who like to call themselves reverendless, and there's people who like to call themselves lots of things. But I'm really interested in how God sees me anyway, not how man sees me. This ordination service as I said, is very different, and I say it's an ordination service because the theme of the chapter could be found in verse 9, where it says, And you shall gird them with sashes, 
Aaron and his sons, and put hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute, and so you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. This ordination was different in that animal sacrifices were used. And if you were present, if you could be transported in a time machine back to this ordination service, I bet you'd say that it would be repulsive to you. I don't know if you've ever seen an animal have its throat slit and blood drained from it until it's drained to the last drop and the blood is poured out and the animal is cut open. Um, if you're a hunter, you're used to it. But many of us are not used to it. And the idea of worship in this kind of a capacity would be offensive to most people. But it paints a very graphic picture if we were to see it. And that is the repulsiveness of sin and the necessity for the shedding of blood to cover the sins of man. Even as they were being consecrated for the priesthood, a sacrifice had to be made for their sins because even the priests were also sinful. And before they could offer a sacrifice for any other of the children of Israel, as it says in the book of Hebrews, they first had to offer a sacrifice for themselves. There are four steps to this ordination service. The first step is washing with water. And last week you saw on the video the laver that has been constructed by the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. So you can keep that in mind as we go through this. There was, first of all, the washing with water. Then there was the anointing with oil. And uh, sometimes they would sprinkle with oil, but when they anointed kings and prophets, they would pour oil from the head down the face till it would drip down their clothes. So it was a very different ordination service. I wonder if we did that today, what the guy would think if we brought him before the elders and just dumped oil all over his head. The third step was the animal sacrifice, and the fourth step was the anointing with the blood. Now, there are several garments that the priest wore. The priest, first of all, wore a tunic, which was a long garment that was kept close to the skin. It was the first garment that he would put on. It was made all of linen. There was no wool involved. They were very comfortable. They were very costly. Over the tunic, over this white tunic, was a blue garment called the robe of the ephod. It was blue, it was seamless, and it had an opening for the head. As we said, it was put over the tunic. Then after that was an ephod itself that went over the robe of the ephod. It's all detailed in this chapter. Basically, that was made of two pieces. It was sort of like a holy vest. There was a front, there was a back, and it was put together by straps at the shoulders with two stones, one on each shoulder. And on each stone was engraved the names of six tribes on each side. Hence, twelve tribes were born upon the shoulders of the high priest. Over that vest was a breastplate, which was like a pouch. It was sewn, it was embroidered, and there were three sets of four stones representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Inside that pouch was kept the Urim and the Thummim. Some people think the Urim and the Thummim were the two stones to decide the will of God were not placed inside the pouch, but were simply the shining forth of certain stones on the breastplate. Uh, it was all put together with a sash, and uh, he had a turban on his head, and the high priest wore a little gold crown that said holiness 
unto the Lord, or sanctified. I am set apart to do God's business. And besides that, he wore linen trousers that went down to the knee, as we said last week, sort of like, well, they were baggy shorts that went down and didn't go all the way to the ankles but covered down to the knees, linen trousers. It was a very elaborate ceremony, but it proved an important point, and that is before one can serve God, he has to be cleansed by God. You just don't run in presumptuously and go, yeah, I volunteer for this job. The priests were selected and ordained by God, ratified by men, cleansed by God before they could serve. And so it is with us. Before we are used, we must be cleansed. It's sad, but there are people in the ministry today, in churches across this country, who aren't even born again. They claim to be spokesmen for God, liberal ministers, who reinterpret history, reinterpret the scriptures. And I would hate to have to stand in their shoes come judgment day, causing in many cases the sheep of the sheepfold to stumble. And Jesus said, anyone who causes one of my little sheep to stumble, it'd be better that you'd throw a, put a stone around his neck and drown him in the Sea of Galilee. His priests were cleansed by God and then they were used by God. And this is what you shall do to them to hollow them for ministering to me as priests. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket with the bull and the two rams and Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall wash them with water. This is the first step. And by the way, this was a one-time cleansing. To be initiated into the priesthood, they went through a ritualistic bathing. And this never had to be repeated. But they did have to go through the cleansing of their hands and their feet on a regular basis every time they would offer any sacrifice and especially when they went from the altar of sacrifice into the holy place. They had to be washed at the laver, which was on the other side of the altar. Then you shall take the garments, verse 5, put the tunic on Aaron and the robe of the ephod, the ephod and the breastplate, and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head, put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head, and anoint him. Notice, pour it on his head. It wasn't a little sprinkle or a little smudge. They poured it on his head. And then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them. You shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, Put the hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute, so you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. You shall also have the bull brought before the tabernacle of meeting, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the bull. This becomes standard sacrificial practice as time goes on. What I mean by that is when any time anyone ever brought a sacrifice to the door of the tabernacle, the custom was to lay hands upon that animal. And it was symbolic of a vicarious atonement or one innocent animal symbolically taking the place or substituting the punishment for the person who laid his hands on it, sort of a transferal. 
You'd lay your hands on it, confess your sins, and then slay the animal. And as we said, this is to sanctify Aaron and his sons. They washed them, they dressed them, they sacrificed the animals, and they were ready for service. Now verse 11. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. You shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar, that is, those protrusions at the corners, which you saw in our film last week and the articles that we had on display a couple weeks ago. You shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and pour the blood beside the base of the altar. Can you see what the ministry was like during those days? The priests continually had blood on their hands. To minister then meant slaying, the endless slaying of animals, the pouring of blood, the sprinkling of blood, uh, of the articles of the tabernacle and of those who serve in it. And it gets more graphic. You shall take the fat that covers the entrails, the guts, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them, and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull with its skin and its offal you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. So the first offering for the priests to serve was a sin offering. They had to take care of their own sins. They had to be atoned for. They weren't perfect. They were sinners like everybody else. Later on, the sin offering becomes an offering for all of the children of Israel for the sins committed in ignorance. Isn't that interesting? What they mean by that is not only do we commit sins that we know about, we commit lots of them we don't know about. We have all fallen short of God's mark. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. God knowing that we commit so many sins that we can't keep track of them. There was even an offering for the sins done in ignorance. And the sin offering was something that was completely consumed upon the altar. And we'll get to it later on as we make our way through the Pentateuch. It was sacrificed outside the camp. The animal was killed outside the camp. And the sin offering speaks of Jesus Christ. I know that because Hebrews chapter 11 draws that analogy. And one particular verse comes to uh, surface in Hebrews 11 chapter, uh, verse 12. Jesus, that he might set apart the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. And what the author of Hebrews is doing is saying just as Jesus was sacrificed outside the gate of Jerusalem, he fulfilled the sin offering that was sacrificed outside the gate of the tabernacle. So the priest needed to be cleansed, needed to be spiritually fit before he could minister. We have at Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque a one-year program for those who desire to be in the ministry. Um, specifically the pastoral ministry. We have a school of ministry, but besides that, we have a shepherd school. It's a year of courses. It's a curriculum that is set up, and we teach them uh, Old Testament, New Testament, biblical theology, hermeneutics, homiletics, beginning in advanced Greek. I look over the crowd, and I see some of the pastoral students, and their head is sort of hung when they have to do their Greek lessons. But we're trying to prepare them as much as we can for the ministry. Because there are so many that we feel go out to do the ministry that God never really called or equipped. 
And so we'd like to challenge, work with, give them as many tools as we can, knowing that we can't anoint or ordain, only God can. Giving them the sufficient tools, however, if God has called them to go out and minister. Charles Spurgeon, years ago in Victorian England, also had a pastor's school. He saw the necessity to see men and women raised up for the work of the ministry, and especially young men, to pastor churches. And he wrote a book called Lectures to My Students, and the first chapter is called The Call to the Ministry, How You Know If You're Called. And Spurgeon said in part of that chapter, No man may intrude into the sheepfold as an under-shepherd. He must have an eye to the chief shepherd and wait for his beck and his command. Before ever a man stands forth as God's ambassador, he must wait for the call from above. If he does not, but he rushes into that sacred office, the Lord will say of him, like others, I sent them not, neither I commanded them, therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. And he's quoting from Jeremiah 23. So he saw the importance of seeing people that God has raised up to stand in that office. And so the priests were called by God, went through the necessary preparation and the sacrifices. Then in verse 15, you shall also take one ram, Aaron and his sons, shall put their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram, and you shall take its blood and sprinkle it all around the altar. You shall cut the ram in pieces, wash its entrails, its legs, and put them with its pieces and with its head, and you shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Now later on, the burnt offering, which is also a sacrifice for the children of Israel, is something that they don't have to do. It's voluntary. It's something if they decide to do it, it's just a worshipful thing that they wanted to do for the Lord. It was a voluntary sacrifice later on. And it speaks of complete consecration. What did Paul say in Romans? I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. And so you could look at this burnt offering as depicting our consecration to God. Then verse 19, you shall also take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of... Boy, there's a lot to go through to get ordained, isn't there? I mean, there's a lot of killing going on and regimentation going on. Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the ram. You shall kill the ram, take some of its blood, and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tip of the right ear of his sons, on the thumb of the right hand and on the big toe of the right foot and shall sprinkle the blood all around the altar. Now Aaron is consecrating his entire life to God as seen by this symbolism. On the right ear signifying I am going to hear the voice of God. On the right hand for the service of God. The right hand always spoke of strength in the Old Testament. Usually it's the strongest hand. No offense if you're a lefty or a southpaw. It's just the way the custom is. The right hand is the hand of strength, the hand of service. So my hand or thumb is anointed with blood to do the work of God and my feet to run in the will of God or to do his beck and his call. And you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments 
on his sons, on the garments of his sons with him. And he and his garments shall be hallowed or made holy, set apart is what the word means. And his sons and his sons' garments with him. You shall take the fat of the ram, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys, and the fat on them, and the right thigh, for it is a ram of consecration. One loaf of bread, one cake made with oil, one wafer from the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons, and you shall wave them. So you put them up in the air and you wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. And you shall receive them back from their hands and burn them on the altar as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma before the Lord. It is an offering made by fire to the Lord. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's consecration, wave it as a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. So part of the animal was kept for the food of the priests. Now imagine walking through Jerusalem when the temple was finally built, when it was a permanent structure, and there was a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice every day besides the festivals and the other offerings that were going on. And God always said, when you burn these things on the altar, it'll be a sweet aroma unto the Lord. Now that shouldn't surprise you. Whenever you go to your backyard and you turn on the barbecue and you put meat on it, or somebody in your neighborhood does it, I mean, I can smell steak barbecued or chicken, you know, a mile away. It's in the air and it's... Wow, what an aroma. Now, God isn't saying, you know, I like my meat rare or well done. The idea here is that it's a sweet aroma because of the obedience. But imagine living around the temple. I'm sure it must have just really smelled good as the sacrifices were burned on that huge seven and a half foot square altar that was about four and a half feet tall, that altar of sacrifice. And it could be smelled, no doubt, from the Temple Mount all around the vicinity of Jerusalem because the city was built that way. And from the ram, verse 27, of the consecration, you shall sanctify the breast of the wave offering which is waved and the thigh of the heave offering which is raised of that which is for Aaron and that which is for his sons. Now the Levites, the tribe of Levi, was never given any land apportionment for farming. God said, I, the Lord, will be your portion. And the way the Levites lived is they were the ones that offered the sacrifices and took care of the tabernacle later on the temple. And people would tithe to them. God would take care of them through the grain offerings, through the heave offerings. There was a portion of food that was destined for the priests so that the priests wouldn't live in farming communities and be working on their own. They were supported by the children of Israel. So they had no land apportionment. And if you look at a map of the tribes of Israel, you see land allotments for Reuben and Gad and Joseph and uh, um, Manasseh and Ephraim and Judah and so forth, but nothing for Levi because the Lord was to be the one that would take care of them through these sacrifices. It shall be from the children of Israel for Aaron and his sons by a statute forever. For it is a heave offering, and it shall be a heave offering from the children of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, that is, their heave offerings, to the Lord. And the holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him, to be anointed in them and to be consecrated in them. That son who becomes a priest in his place shall put them on for seven days when he enters the tabernacle of meeting to minister in the holy place. And you shall take the ram of the consecration, boil its flesh 
in the holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They shall eat those things with which the atonement was made to consecrate and to sanctify them. But a stranger shall not eat them because they are holy. Now the word atonement appears in the scripture. And it appears a few times in the Old Testament. The idea of the word kafar, atonement, is to cover. And the sacrifices of the Old Testament covered sin that was committed. It never totally obliterated the sin or washed it clean. All of these sacrifices pointed forward to a future time when the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist called him, would take away the sins of the world. Jesus was the Lamb that took away sin. The Old Testament sacrifices covered over them. And that's why we read in Hebrews chapter 10, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. I've often thought of what it would be to, like to be a priest, especially if I were a priest for a long, long time, seeing the endless processions of people with lambs killing another lamb. And every year you think, here, it's going to happen again next year. Just the monotonous display of covering over sin, but just the glorious truth when John and Paul and some of the early New Testament Christians discovered that, hey, we don't have to keep bringing sacrifices. It's over once and for all. There's no more continual sacrifice. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left its crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. And that you don't have to keep bringing a lamb. Jesus, the spotless lamb, has taken away sin. Verse 34, And if the flesh of the consecration offerings or of the bread remains until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it's holy. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Seven days you shall consecrate them. You shall offer a bull every day as a sin offering for atonement. You shall cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to sanctify it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it. The altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar must be holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Now this became known as the daily sacrifices, the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice, which you still read about in the New Testament. I grew up in a religious home. And I grew up Roman Catholic. Most of you know that, but I'm confessing it publicly now. And I'm not saying this to slur any denomination or get down on the Catholics, but to straighten out an idea that some of you still may have. I was told that there must be a continual sacrifice taking place. It's the doctrine of the continual sacrifice of the Mass. And it stems way back from the early days of the Roman Church when the doctrine of transubstantiation was taught. Transubstantiation means, in Catholic terms, 
that the wafer and the wine become literally the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not mystically, it's not metaphorical, it's actually the body and blood of Christ. When you eat it, you're eating his body. When you drink the wine, you're drinking his blood. And there needs to be a continual priesthood, a continual sacrifice of the Mass. When I became a Christian, I still went to Mass to have my sins atoned for every week. Went to confession and had to go to the Mass because there need be that continual sacrifice of the Mass. You can imagine how excited I was when I came upon reading the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 26, that said this, But now, once, and, he, and the Greek is once for all, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And I kept reading that, hmm, put away sin, once for all. And a couple of times in Hebrews, it says instead of a continual sacrifice, and he's writing to Hebrew Christians who kept thinking, got to keep bringing the lamb, got to keep bringing the lamb. Paul says, no, you don't. It's been done once for all. You've been atoned for. Your sins have been cast out in the presence of God. Now, you need to confess your sins if you willfully do them. You need to ask God's forgiveness and cleansing on a daily basis. But the sacrifice is over. You don't have to keep having a continual sacrifice. It's an erroneous dogma that emerged because people started allegorizing the scriptures and came up with the reinstitution of an Old Testament priesthood. My mother was shocked when I said, Mom, I fulfilled your wish. I'm a priest. She didn't think it was funny. I didn't think it was funny. I just thought it was truthful. I showed her Peter that says that we are all priests. We're a nation of priests, a royal priesthood. And that Jesus, our high priest, has gone in, ripped the veil. We have access to God. I don't need to come to a priest. There is one mediator. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, I do sin, but I don't go to a person and say, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I go to my heavenly Father and say, Father, you know I've already, you already know I've sinned. And I confess it to you, and I ask you to forgive me. That's what 1 John says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I can come to him anytime, and he will cleanse me of my sin. With the one lamb, verse 40, shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed. So here's the recipe. One hint of a pressed oil, one-fourth of a hint of wine as a drink offering. And I didn't bother to get into the measurements to discover exactly what that was because it's over. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight and you shall offer it with it. The grain offering and the drink offering is in the morning for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord where I will meet you to speak with you. I have loved that verse of Scripture. Just the whole idea of God desiring to meet with us, to have fellowship with his people, to speak with us. You know, I'm convinced, Old or New Testament, whatever portion I read, that God has always desired an intimate relationship with his people. But no one could approach God presumptuously and just on his own and invent some worship system. 
because man failed by sin, God needed to provide a sacrifice and an altar of sacrifice so that a sins, could be, sins could be atoned for so that God could meet with his people. And there's been several covenants that God established with man. This is the covenant of the law, which is ended in Jesus Christ. I will meet with the children of Israel and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So I will sanctify the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also sanctify both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So the summary statement of this chapter is that God has fulfilled the promise that he began the book with. God says, you're a bunch of slaves in Egypt. I'm going to take you out, deliver you, bring you into a new land, and you're going to know that I'm your God and I'm going to dwell among you. God is now fulfilling the promise by making a covenant out in the wilderness. And it's a worship system that God instituted. But later on, God will chide them for using the same worship system that he instituted. Because later on, they go through all the motions. They go to the temple. They sing all the songs. But their hearts are not in it. Their hearts are far from God. They're just, it's just lip service. They're bringing the sacrifices, but they're just going through the motions. They have left the emotion behind. It's really not a heartfelt. And so in Isaiah chapter 1, God says, What purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices, saith the Lord? I am fed up with your burnt offerings, your new moons, your Sabbaths. They are abhorrent to me. And when you pray to me and spread out your hands, I won't even listen. Boy, that's heavy. You may say, wait a minute. You're the one that told us to bring these sacrifices. And now you say, what's the purpose of these sacrifices? It's your idea. Oh, but God wanted the heart to be. It was all symbolic. Not a, it wasn't just a ritual. The heart had to be in it. Jesus said, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites saying, you draw near to me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. God isn't satisfied with religion. He really wants relationship. That's the purpose of these covenants, to bring people to that place. Now we come to chapter 30, and right off the bat, we talk about the altar of incense. Now, in the tabernacle, there were three articles that spoke of worship, and they were in the holy place. And, uh, You've got your little map there in your books, if you have a book. And those three articles were, as you walk into the holy place, on the right-hand side was the table of showbread. In front of you was the altar of incense, which we're speaking about here. And on the left-hand side was the golden lampstand. They were placed in front of the veil. The, on the other side of the veil was the holy of holies. And what was inside that? The Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat. And that's the place where the high priest went once a year. Before you could come to this altar, before the priest could come to this altar, he had to first go to another altar, right? The altar of bronze in the outer court. He couldn't just run and go, Hi, God, how you doing? Just want to have fellowship with you. He had to first take care of sin at the bronze altar. Sacrifice must always precede worship. And that's the principle of the tabernacle. And I would say that goes for us today. Now, Jesus has sacrificed himself for our sins. We don't have to offer any sacrifice for our sins, but I would say that before worship, there must be confession. 
I think one of the most important steps in any relationship with God is the confession of sins, and I like to do that a lot. Before I come to church, or as I said at the beginning of a worship service, I just ask God to wash me, to cleanse me, because uh, I'm flesh. God knows my frame that I'm but dust. The world has lots of allurements, and the thought processes can wander. And I just say, God, cleanse my mind. And if there's any specific sins, help me to confess them before you. Then I might enter in with assurance. You shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length. That's 18 inches. A cubit, its width. So it's 18 inches squared. And two cubits shall be its height. So 36 inches tall. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. Almost every court of any ancient king had incense burning in it. First of all, it smelled really good. I've got to say, I remember growing up in the Catholic Church, that's one thing I really did like the smell of was the incense when it was burned at, at certain of the services. It's just, it's a beautiful aroma, and kings would burn incense, and God commanded incense to be burned in the Old Covenant because incense always spoke of the presence of a king, of a ruler. In almost every temple and almost every court of the ancient world, it spoke that the king is present. But it also speaks of prayer, and we'll see why in just a minute. You shall overlay its top, all sides, all around, and its horns with pure gold. You shall make for it a molding of gold all around. Two rings you shall make for it, under the molding on both sides. You shall place them on its two sides. They will be for holders for the poles to bear it. You shall make poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold. You shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning when he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer strange incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a meal offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. So God says, look, here's an altar. Don't sacrifice an animal on it. You only burn incense on it. And you only burn a certain kind of incense on it. Um, in the book of Numbers, there's the story of the sons of Aaron who came and offered strange fire on this altar. And strange fire isn't really described for us, but they did something wrong, either in their motivation or how they performed this offering of incense. But they offered some wrong thing, and it says God killed them. Now, that's enough to make me slow down and figure out exactly what the principle is behind not only that, but this scripture where God says you shall offer, not offer strange incense or a burnt offering or meal offering. Probably foreign incense is the idea that would be used in the worship of another deity. Worship must be prescribed by God. God never left worship up to the individual to say, hey, whatever you're into, man, really, as long as you're sincere and as long as you smile nicely, you can do anything you want. Jesus said the Father is seeking people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. 
Those two things together, in spirit and in truth. There's a king later on in the book of Chronicles named King Uzziah, a good king. Fifty-two years he was on the throne. He brought incredible reform and revival to the nation of Israel. But he had a problem, I think, with his ego. He was a good king, but he thought, you know, I've always wanted to be a priest. So presumptuously, he walks into the holy place and offers incense on the altar of incense. And the scripture says his heart was lifted up to his own destruction because he sought to offer incense on this altar. And it cost him his life later on. Now I want to expand on this. True worship is worship that is prescribed by the Lord. Remember back in Genesis chapter 4, there were two characters, one named Cain and one named Abel. And Cain offered the fruit of the ground, and Abel offered the firstlings of his flock. And God had respect unto the offering of Abel, but he was angry with Cain. And because God didn't receive his offering, Cain got all bummed out, and his countenance was fallen. And God said, Cain, why art thou bummed out? That's a paraphrase. Why is your countenance fallen? If you lived right, would not you be accepted? It would seem that there was already in place at that time a prescribed way to worship by animal sacrifice. Either God spoke directly to them or probably, most probably, Adam and Eve, mom and dad, sat them down and said, kids, let me tell you something. There was a time when we thought we could present ourselves any way we wanted to before God. We sewed fig leaves together. God rejected them. We had to kill an animal, and the skin of that innocent animal had to be wrapped around us. And we have to be careful how we approach God. There must be the slaying of an innocent animal. Blood has to be shed. Sacrifice has to be made before we approach God because we're sinners. And in Cain and Abel, we have two types of people, a righteous person and a religious person who decides, you know, I've got my own religion, my own way to approach God. I'll come any way I want to. Abel came God's prescribed way. Cain made up his own way. Oh, this is great. This is something that is of me, and it's something that's important to me, the fruit of the ground. I'm going to give it to the Lord. And it seems like he disregarded it. That's why it says, by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Because Abel believed that sacrifice must be made before approach to God can be made. Jude warns us to avoid the way of Cain. Proverbs chapter 14 says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. How many people have you met that have made God this existential deity that doesn't care how you approach him, it's just entirely up to you, and if you're sincere enough and do whatever you want, all roads lead to God. I mean, how many times have we heard that? You know, it's interesting that it seems like the notion that any way is okay seems to only work in people's minds in the area of God. Any way is okay, as long as you're sincere. But not in any other way. What if you went to the doctor? And you had a lot of pain, and you wanted to get that diagnosed. The doctor put a stethoscope on, checked you out, and he said, Look, 
go home and do whatever way you think is best. Just do whatever feels good, as long as you're sincere. And you don't offend anybody. Just go home and take care of this yourself. Follow your own heart. Find your own path, your own health. You'd say, why did I waste my time? You're a quack. Yet people, when they talk about eternal things, think it's okay just to make up your own way without the prescription of God. God says, listen, you're going to make an altar and it's going to look like this and you only offer a certain kind of incense and only incense on it. We must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, we don't have to come to an altar today like the altar of incense. Jesus Christ has fulfilled that. But the point being, just like to the woman in the New Testament of Samaria, that it's not where you worship, but you must worship in spirit and in truth. All right, verse 10. Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It's most holy unto the Lord. Now today, every believer is called a priest. It's the analogy that Peter used. We're a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. And incense speaks of prayers that go to God. You say, how do you know that? Well, Psalm 141, David said, let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense. Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, we read, then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar and there was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Do you remember when the New Testament opens up? It opens up chronologically with the scene of a priest standing and praying at the time of the evening sacrifice, the offering of incense, and he's praying. As the people are praying outside, he's offering incense inside. His name is Zacharias. And as he's offering incense upon this altar, as the people are praying outside, what happens? An angel stands at the right side of the altar of incense and gives Zacharias a message. In other words, 400 silent years are broken at the altar of incense, this place of worship, this place of prayer as the priest comes to offer prayers before God. God speaks to Zacharias and prophesies that he'd have a son, John the Baptist, and that he'd be the forerunner of the Messiah. It's also a picture of Jesus Christ, our intercessor. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He's always making uh, requests and, and interceding for us at the throne of God, the Bible tells us. With one exception, and I don't want to get into this too much because we're out of time. Jesus Christ is seen in the New Testament as a high priest. But the writer of Hebrews says he's a lot better than the priests of the sons of Aaron. Jesus Christ is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the writer of Hebrews says, chapter 7, was the priest of Salem, which means the prince of peace. He's without father or mother. He has no genealogy, and he abides as a priest forever. Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron, and the writer of Hebrews shows how that this priesthood is better. It predates it, and it's, it's a whole study in itself. We don't have time to do it tonight. I was thinking in my mind to go through it, but I think that it would just take too long and we'll go through it another time. We touched on it when we went through Genesis. All right, verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, when you take a census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them 
that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone among you who who are numbered shall give. Half of a shekel. According to the shekel of the sanctuary, a shekel is 20 geras. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. 20 geras is not a coin. It's a measurement of weight. There was no coinage at this time, ever. They didn't have coins in those days. They had silver by weight, and 20 geras measures out to be a half shekel of weight of silver. And that's what they would give every person uh, as this uh, medal of redemption. Um, Look at verse 16. You shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle meeting that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourself. Census taking goes back as far as history itself in almost any ancient document. If you uh, look archaeologically, kings took a census for two purposes. For the military want to know how many fighting men are available, and to tax people. Things haven't changed, have they? We want to know who's out there so we can tax them. God was taking a census to find out those who would pay the half shekel to uh, ratify the covenant that he was making with them. The idea is not that you just are numbered, but you participate in the covenant by giving a half shekel. You make yourself numbered, and then you give a half shekel. So the covenant was made personal. Faith is always personal. That's the principle here. It's more than just, yeah, I raise my hand, I acknowledge something. It's You make it personal. You receive Christ. You stand up, and you're counted. By the way, I think this is the purpose of having an altar call. There's no biblical precedent at all for having people come forward, necessarily. But it is good Because it is one way to publicly profess, I am following Jesus Christ. I'm going to stand up and be counted. Even as these people in the Old Testament were counted and then had to participate by giving a half shekel. We we don't charge people a half shekel when they come forward. But uh, the idea is that it's made personal. Let's see. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, You shall make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. You shall put water in it. We'll close with verse 21. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in the water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and to his descendants throughout their generations. If you were to look ahead at chapter 38, it tells us that the bronze that was used to make this labor came from the bronze of the mirrors that the women used for their beauty that they took from the Egyptians. So the mirrors, these objects of of uh, personal beauty were sacrificed to make this labor of cleansing. There's sort of an interesting analogy in that. The mirrors were used to reveal the dirt. The labor was used spiritually to cleanse the priest and, as an analogy, the cleansing of Israel. That's what the labor was used for. Uh, Notice that the cleansing was to be before service and in between, before they would go inside the holy place. That's interesting. 
Every time they were to perform something, though they had already had one washing that initiated them, they had to be constantly cleansed, their feet in their, hand, uh, feet in their hands. Whenever they went outside and came back in, they had to be cleansed again. When they walked outside, they were contaminated, unholy, and they had to be made holy by this ritual of cleansing. There is an analogy for us. One bath, many cleansings. Remember when Jesus, at the Last Supper, got up out of his seat, washed the disciples' feet. The disciples didn't know what he was doing. And finally comes to Peter. Peter acts really cool and goes, No, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet, thinking that Jesus is going to commend him for being such a swell guy. And Jesus said, All right, Peter, if I don't wash you, you'll have no part with me. And Peter goes, Oh, then, Lord, just wash everything, my head, everything. He went overboard. He went the other extreme. Just wash. I want a whole bath. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Peter, you've already been cleansed. But we get contaminated on a daily basis. Jesus said, Now you are clean by the word which I have spoken unto you. We need to constantly be cleansed. I've already been washed of all my sins, but I need to be constantly cleansed by the Word of God and the presence of God for the sins I commit knowingly and unknowingly to maintain that fellowship with the Lord, that walk in intimacy with Him. When I used to live in Southern California, besides having earthquakes and uh, floods and all the other things they've been having, we had smog. Now, I know you around here look at certain times of the year and call it smog, but it's really not... Really, it's not smog. We had smog. We had smog so bad, it would be the equivalent of standing on tramway and being unable to see that there's a mountain next to you. It's that bad. And during the summer, with the smog and the heat, you just had a film of dirt on you. Every time you'd go outside, you'd think, gosh, I'd like to take a shower again. Because just the dirt in the air clings to you. And you feel like you just need a constant cleansing. Being out in the world... We can sin with our eyes. We can sin with our hands and with our feet, walking in wrong paths, letting our minds wander into wrong areas. And we need to be cleansed. One bath, but many cleansings. I'll close with this thought. The tabernacle, it says in Hebrews, is a copy of heavenly things, right? So when you get to the book of Revelation and John is caught up into heaven... He sees the throne of God and the elders around the throne of God. And instead of seeing a laver for the cleansing of sin, he sees a glassy sea. This huge laver that is solid as crystal, he says. And the 24 uh, elders are standing upon it and their thrones are around it and they abdicate their thrones upon that glassy sea. At one time, the laver was liquid. It was used for the cleansing of the priest, typifying cleansing from sin before serving, in heaven, we're standing upon it. It's past tense. There's no need. It's over. It's a complete, absolute redemption in the presence of God before His throne. It's made of pure crystal. And worship songs go on day and night in God's presence. And it speaks of the fact that cleansing is over and uh, the trials of life are over as well as we're in God's presence forever. We'll pick it up next week and we'll finish with um, chapter 30. We'll go on to chapter 31 and uh, 
you know, the chapter 31 and 32 are a couple of my highlighted or favorite chapters in the scripture. There's so many important lessons in it. And uh, we'll get to one of my favorite characters in chapter 31 named Bezalel. And I'll tell you why he's one of my favorite next time when we meet. Let's pray. Actually, the rest of Exodus goes pretty quick because there are several chapters that repeat. And it just says they did exactly what God told them to do. They built the labor. They built the altar of incense, the altar of sacrifice. They did, and it's a re- repetition of the uh, uh, measurements and so forth. So we can just cover them, you know, eight of them in one night. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that all of these things are over. They all were speaking of Jesus Christ, and we look at them now, and they're all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Our great high priest, the cross, which speaks of the altar of sacrifice, the altar of incense, which speaks of Jesus Christ as our high priest, carrying on even now that ministry of intercession before the throne. Father, we are grateful for the work that Jesus Christ has done that allows us to have access into your presence. And that we are all a priesthood of believers. And we can offer up our prayers as incense and you hear us. Father, we thank you for the cleansing. We thank you for the approach. And I pray tonight, Father, that if some have come who have not made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, have not been cleansed of their sins, maybe they have sought to approach you in worship by their own method, their own way, their own devices, like Cain. That as they humble themselves tonight, instead of making up their own approach, they would humble themselves because they can only come through Jesus Christ. That's the only approach that you will receive, the Lamb that has been slain. We pray, Father, that those who don't know you tonight would receive Jesus as their Lamb to make atonement for their sins. And as your heads are bowed, before we close this meeting, just an invitation. If you are not sure that your sins have been absolutely forgiven, if you are not certain that you are right with God, but you want to be certain, you can be. By receiving Him, the Lamb that was slain for your sins, your sins can be forgiven, you can be made right with God, and God can fill you with peace tonight. Peace tonight. Peace tonight. Peace tonight. Peace tonight. Peace tonight. Peace 